Is the FTX scandal the beginning of the beginning for crypto? I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. I have been gone for a while. Thank you for your patience. I am back in the saddle, and do I have a doozy of a deep dive for you today. But I want to tell you that I'm doing something else today. If you're listening to this in real time, it's Friday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, on Rockfin and also YouTube, I'm going live with Midnight Mike and the Naked Gardener. That's going to be pretty exciting. That could be a first ever in podcasting history. I also want to let you know while I was gone, I dropped a Fat Mitch, a Chewing the Fat with Fat Mitch. People loved it. It's on Ancient Egypt, a different angle for sure. So you can only find that on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. And if you want to buy a t-shirt, I'm still selling Propaganda Report t-shirts for sale at a discount and including stickers if you order now. You can go to monicasdeepdives.com, go to the support section, and there's a shop button, and you can click through to my little store there. Okay, so what's the diving board? Sam Bankman-Fried blames huge management failures for FTX collapse. So you may have heard about a big crypto exchange going under with a caricaturish young billionaire at the helm. And I think that we're used to our caricaturish young tech billionaires to go on to run the world for decades, testify before Congress, get all sorts of respect. But this guy just crashed and burned, crashed and burned big time. And I have to tell you, when people with really big personalities get a lot of airtime and they take big public risks they and their stars just keep rising no matter how reckless they seem to be like that's a big flag to me and uh this whole story seemed totally fishy and i immediately thought it was meant to stimulate crypto regulation right i mean i think everybody immediately jumped to that conclusion but for me it was a little different because i couldn't get my mind around it because this guy Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, was the son of Stanford law professors. They're still there, and they were there when I was at law school, and I remember them. So I didn't have the mom as a teacher, but I did have the dad, and I liked him. I totally liked him, and I could not imagine he'd be a party to this deception. And at first, I was I felt bad for him. But then I did a little day, not much, and couldn't help but stumble upon the information that SBF's female counterpart in this, so there's a sister company, FTX, and the sister company that SBF had also founded, Alameda Research, the current CEO is, uh, you want to call her a woman, but she dresses, she she looks like a 12-year-old, I'll get into that later, Caroline Ellison, she's the daughter of two MIT economics professors, one of whom is the head of the economics department. So I'm thinking, what are the odds that the smartest kids in the room would bring an industry to its knees? And if they do, isn't that just proof positive that regulation is in order, right? But still, I I mean, that was like a bit too much for me to believe that like they have basically quadruple legacy in the in the echelons of of the ivory tower or whatever and that it wasn't a setup but I still reserve judgment until Dean tweeted at me 
that Ellison's dad, who is the head of the economics department at MIT, <laughs> was in that position when the current head of the Security and Exchange Committee Commission, Gary Gensler, was teaching a class on crypto there. So I have some details on that. But once I read that, I just, I could not turn a blind eye to all the fishy details in the story. And as I dug into it, some of the stuff was just implausible. Like it was <laughs> like a perfect storm, another perfect storm. I actually can't believe that nobody said that about this yet. I guess because it would make it seem like, yeah, how did all these things happen at once? I mean, the, the things that, that sparked the whole implosion, one was something that was leaked and the other was something that was tweeted. And, you know, when stuff like, if those are your, if that's the medium, media of communication, my flags are up. Okay, so I'm going to tick these off, like all the, the weird details one by one. It's a lot, so buckle up. First thing is, I think this is November 2nd, I don't know, something around then, Coinbase published a short article on an, a leaked copy of, a, of an Alameda research balance sheet. They said, we don't know if this is the whole thing, there could be other ones, but this is it. And it looks like FTT, which is the native token of FTX, which is the crypto exchange, was the most weightiest asset on Alameda's balance sheet. And some people, you know, I, I, it would take me a whole nother day to get through all the nitty gritty of how this stuff works. I know a lot of people out there do know how it works and probably have a better, for sure, have a better understanding of the nuances here, but that's not what I'm after, like the actual nuances of the crypto exchanges. So I spent my time elsewhere and I think you'll appreciate it as we go through this. But one analogy in an article I read was that like a native token is is equivalent or the FTT anyway was more like airline miles. So it has a lot of value within the airline, but not too much value outside the airline. So if and I and you know a lot of the a lot of the details are sketchy to the point where SBF had an interview yesterday or midweek this week with the New York Times, which I'll talk about a few times in this today's episode, today's dive. But even he says he doesn't really have access to the numbers. He doesn't really know what the numbers are. But let's say that Alameda has a lot of outside debt that is secured by this FTT. If, if it has no external value, you can have this kind of vortex effect where this thing is just collapsing in on itself because there is no outside value outside of this FTT. But I'm not even sure you know, I'm not sure how what the real magnitude of this thing is, because what SBF said was that Alameda was basically swimming around in a pool of these FTX international investors who were in an unfettered margin environment where they could just leverage up their assets 100 to 1, and they were all kind of lending money to each other. This is how he is describing it. And he's not describing it very well. But the idea is, supposedly, there's different, different people are saying different things. But one of the things that they're saying is that they took client money, that he took the money on FTX's balance sheet and handed it over to Alameda. And then Alameda leveraged it up on its own behalf. SBF says that 
people at FTX, clients of FTX, wanted to have a kind of banking relationship with them, but because of regulatory things, FTX couldn't get it, couldn't be authorized to do that. He had to push it over into Alameda, but because he did that, it obscured the finances for him, and he was trying not to be in a managerial role at Alameda because it was potentially conflicts of interest, so he wasn't really paying attention. It's a bunch of gobbledygook. You can listen to the interview. My impression of the interview was that he was trying to sound like an idiot, like he was too young or naive or whatever. Uh, I think this thing is a show, and I'm really not even sure what the magnitude of the whole thing is, to be honest with you. So, but that's the idea, that they used customer assets to trade on their own behalf, to have a lot of debt, and that did remind me of MF Global. MF Global was John Corzine's scam where they said that he did use customer money as the collateral for proprietary trading, but he said it was within the terms of the agreement. Like that was your customer agreement, which people didn't really read. Now that is our agreement with our own banks, like because the FDIC secures bank deposits, the banks use our money to secure their own investments sometimes or other people, you know, their investment in somebody else's mortgage, like on It's a Wonderful Life. So, in this New York Times interview, SBF was asked if that's what they were doing, if it was against the terms of agreement and he, he, terms of service, whatever. And he read the interviewer, read a passage and SBF said, well, but there are other places in the agreement where it's okay. And because this guy's parents are law professors, I have a feeling that these tricky little details will come out in his favor. Now he acts like he's unsophisticated in some of these regards, but I think this is pretty carefully orchestrated. And I think it's it's possible, like MF Global claims, that it would be technically legal. Now, MF Global got the money back to the people who would have had a position to sue him to prove or disprove that. SBF says that they're going to get all the money back to American investors, and it would be the same pattern as F MF Global. And right now, that's what I'm seeing. And to top it all off... He said in this interview that between the Bahamian and U.S. regulators seizing assets, suspending trading, and a mysterious hack, which they didn't really get into in the interview, but I read about it elsewhere, that may be responsible for somehow siphoning off up to hundreds of millions of dollars out of that system. He doesn't know what the financial status is. He feels like the American investors are not actually insolvent, that although they're illiquid, they can't get the money out, that that the money should be there, but he he can't be sure of the details. And honestly, because all these things, that's what I thought. I really expected him to say that it was a perfect storm, but he didn't. Anyway, a lot of fishy stuff going on here. All right, so that was the first weird thing. That was what started this, this Alameda's balance sheet getting leaked by Coinbase article. Then the next thing that happens shortly thereafter, the... Binance guy, which is the next biggest crypto exchange alongside FTX and an early investor from what I can tell who, when he pulled out, got a bunch of FTT, the token. So he's got, he was, I think, the biggest holder of the token outside of Alameda. And if he were to liquidate that, it would, it could start a downward spiral 
of the price of FTT. And it would actually, because he had such a huge position and nobody else would be there to buy it unless Alameda bought it, which they said they would buy at $22, which I think was far below where it was at the time, but far higher than it was after this guy did the stupidest thing ever, which is he tweeted, he tweeted that he was going to divest himself of this FTT, which is so stupid. It's up there with the um, Joan Rivers malpractice thing where her daughter filed suit against the doctor who killed her saying like, it's so unbelievable. I mean, it's just not believable, (laughs) you know, although she believes it, I don't. But in this case, I don't believe this either that this guy, because then of course it crashes. And, but this is where I, I start wondering about the truth behind the actual magnitude of these assets. Does he really have whatever was supposed to be $2 billion worth of FTT or did he end up selling it? Did he not? If he didn't have it and he crashed the market just by tweeting, I think SBF would have a cause of action against him and he has the deep pockets to pay for that. But SBF isn't saying that he didn't own it. And he's not even saying that he crashed it on purpose. But you know, and why would he? Could he crash on purpose to take FTX out of his competitive sphere? But it would have been out of the competitive sphere anyway if he crashed the FTT just by selling it, just by trying to put it back. It would have greatly diminished the value of their assets, which he now knew was backstopping all their loans. So, I mean, I, I don't want to pretend like I know that all the ins and outs of this, but I do know that it's stupid to tell people you're about to sell a huge position <laughs> before you actually do it. And, and I, that instinct was validated in a Forbes article I read. Here's a quote from Forbes. The Binance CEO took the unusual step of comparing FTT to the failed Luna token, which saw its value disintegrate in June, along with its associated stablecoin Terra USD, which cost investors more than $40 billion. The comparison was a damaging one from an industry leader who should know the weight his words would carry. And then he went on and um, impaired the value of his own asset. All right. So the next thing that's kind of a tell is that SBF was active in lobbying for regulation against DeFi or decentralized finance. And this regulation, which... I don't know if it should have or should not have gotten a boost from the scandal, but it did. The regulation is called DCCPA, Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act. And while it's bad for decentralized finance in general, supposedly it would be good for FTX. That was the argument of why he would be out there lobbying for this. And my guess is he will continue to lobby for this. So another thing that was weird is that he was a major shareholder in Robinhood. Not not a majority shareholder, but like nine, eight, I think he owned 8% of Robinhood. And that was the exchange that was at the center of the GameStop thing. Was that a year ago now? I don't know how long ago it was, but at that time, I thought they're trying to show that retail investors are, you know, the little guy is at big risk here because they are the dumb money. And I felt like that in itself was going to be an uh, used to promote retail regulations. And even then, you know, I knew sometimes these kind of little false flags have to happen a lot. 
there has to have to be many of them to point in the same direction. And the fact that he was a part of Robin Hood and that was part of that seems weird to me. And then Alameda and FTX made a lot of investments in this DeFi thing. Actually, I think it was like well over 100. I think maybe 186 investments and maybe 130 of them are circling the drain, if not already bankrupt. Like they really tainted a whole industry and maybe more, maybe literally damaged them with their own collapse. Maybe that was part of just a domino effect, but it definitely isn't good for DeFi. All right, so another thing that's really weird is their persona. SBF and Caroline Ellison have these very, like, over-the-top, nerdy or tech nerd persona. For SBF, it's shorts and a T-shirt. His hair is wild and crazy. He uh, says stupid things. He said something that could be definitely construed as racist, Oh, by the way, about this guy, Changpeng Zhao, who goes by, he's the Binance chief, he goes by CZ. Now, CZ are the initials for cubic zirconia, which is a fake diamond. So I'm a little sketchy on this guy, too. I'm not saying those aren't his initials. And he sounds super Chinese, but he's Canadian. <laughs> so, I mean, he was born in China, but he he's definitely a Canadian citizen right now. So SBF says... Oh, can CZ even be in D.C.? Like, you know, making a slam on a Chinese immigrant. You know, like that's just no no child of Stanford professors is going to say stuff like that without knowing that it's offensive. And he said a lot of other things like that, too. Like we're, you know, we all say these things that sound good to the liberals, but we don't really mean it. You know, he tried to explain that, but. And then Caroline Ellison says stupid things too, like, hey, it's, you know, when you're up all night taking whatever, Ritalin or Adderall or something, you know, you kind of wonder, feel bad for people who aren't, something weird like that. You for, I forget the quote, but just a bunch of weird stuff. But when you look at her, there's, she has a carefully curated and truly horrible image. She's got like two pictures out there. One where she's actually 12 and one where it looks like she's 12 and a half. Terrible. Like her teeth are crooked and her hair is like, I don't know if it's in pigtails or just in like little corkscrew curls with big giant glasses. She just doesn't look good in this one picture and she doesn't look like an adult. And then there's another, you know, and for somebody who's worth a billion dollars, it just... I'll tell you a little bit about their effective altruism, what I think is now a cult. I'm beginning to think it's a cult that may account for why they say the things they do, look the way they do, act the way they do. We can get into that. But but her image is very curated. She looks like she's, you know, it was dressed like a nerd day at school. And there's one video that I thought I kind of discovered of her being in person on a YouTube video of Bahamian guys, because this whole thing is taking place in the Bahamas that SBF is still in the Bahamas. And she's, she's there very casual dressed in a mismatch outfit. I think if I recall correctly, she's even wearing like knee socks and she's just says, Oh, wow. You know, I could do this job with grade school math. And like, let's not talk about any kind of big losses, yada, yada. And it it was just a weird 
inappropriately casual thing. And I feel like that's part of an image. Cause then if you go and try to find pictures of her, I mean, you, you could literally find more pictures of me, <laughs> you know, than you could of her. And she's this, she's been this in the spotlight billionaire for a while now. So I just, I find that not, not believable. Okay. So let's keep going with her for a minute. I want to talk about her parents. Her father, uh, like I said, is the head of the economics department at MIT. Gary Gensler, the current head of the SEC, taught there while this guy was the economics chair. And as, as a Coindesk article says, adding to the intrigue, Ellison's father, Glenn, is the Gregory K. Palm Professor of Economics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's the head of the economics department and was in this role when current Security and Exchange Commission Chairman Gary Gensler famously taught an MIT course on blockchain. Her mother, Sarah Fisher Ellison, is also an economics department lecturer at the university. Okay. So an NPR article says, Gensler knows a lot about cryptocurrencies. Most recently, he was a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. That sounds like the business school. Where he focused on blockchain technology, digital currencies, financial technology, and public policy. Uh, he wants more resources, more money, more manpower to regulate cryptocurrencies. For years, leaders of the SEC and the CFTC have complained that Congress hasn't given them enough money for them to do their jobs. Also in this article is the money. Robert Jackson, the former SEC commissioner, argues regulation will widen the appeal of cryptocurrency assets. The market will be better off because assuring investors that they are getting the kind of transparent pricing they are used to in American markets will encourage other investors to consider the possibility of investing in cryptocurrency. That, to me, is one of the most important things that you can take away from this deep dive, which is these kind of experiences. I mean, in this New York Times article, the guy the or interview, the interviewer said to SBF, read him a letter from somebody saying, I put my life savings in this guy's thing, $2 million, and I've lost everything. What does this guy have to say for himself? And I'm sitting there thinking, who puts $2 million in a totally opaque, totally private company where, I mean, what are your assets? Like, it is unbelievable to me that I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that, that that's everything the guy had. He he did that. I mean, your retirement savings, are there really retirees worth $2 million and $2 million alone? We're putting it all with this guy? I mean, granted, there was a lot of publicity, a lot of public exposure, uh, powerful names that would give them credibility, but it would be just faith alone, really. So what could save people from running and screaming away from crypto or from actually using their heads and needing to see some proof as, as SBF and CZ are both saying we want proof of reserves, proof of reserves. So that's going to be regulated, I assume, because they're both calling for that. So that's why I listened to this article, because what SBF is saying in that article is going to be the takeaway. That's going to be really, he's directing our thinking and directing the conversation the way the mentally ill subway shooters said, we need more mental health, you know, in the subway. And now they're starting to put people in the subway and mental health facilities. Like the, sometimes the 
you know, the manifesto is the policy blueprint, <laughs> you know? So I feel like with crypto, just like everything else, when or truth in advertising, like if there were no truth in advertising laws, you wouldn't believe anything. Advertising would have no power at all. So they're doing this to promote faith in crypto. And they're, and they're actually saying that. And it goes on to say, many believe new regulations could help cryptocurrencies become a bigger part of our daily lives. For example, some currencies, including companies, including AMC theaters, have already announced that they will accept cryptocurrencies as payment. Now, I think I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that if you're actually using an alternate currency in this country, that's illegal. <laughs> that that in itself would end this right then and there. It could be used as a medium, as a store of value, but not as a medium of exchange. If I understand how it's been read into the Constitution. So if they regulate it as a medium of exchange, they're acknowledging it as a currency and not a security. And that is what I think would be unconstitutional. So so there, this is clearly a, a design. And I don't know if it's just a stepping stone to CBDC or if they want to incorporate crypto or if they want everybody on crypto because... I understand Bitcoin is different. I do believe that. And it can be truly anonymous, but it's possible that nothing else is, or I don't know what, people like ETH. I, I just don't know. I'm not a crypto guy. But they definitely are trying to bring it into the fold for a reason. For sure, CBDC is is happening. I don't know how this stuff is folding in, but they definitely have a plan for it. Now, Gensler made a speech at the Aspen Security Forum in 2021, and it was very prescient of this exact crisis. So I'm going to read you some passages from that. Unlike other trading markets where investors go through an intermediary like the New York Stock Exchange, people can trade on crypto trading platforms without a broker 24 hours a day, seven days a week from around the globe. And that is a point that SBF was making in that interview, which I said earlier about Alameda, like everybody was just swimming around, giving each other loans, margining stuff up 100 to 1. All right, Gensler goes on further, while many overseas platforms state they don't allow U.S. investors, there are allegations that some unregulated foreign exchange exchanges facilitate trading by U.S. traders who are using virtual private networks or VPNs. That's another point SBF made and the interviewer made that people who were burned were probably, if they were Americans burned, they were probably using a VPN and doing it on this international arm of FTX, that anybody who was on the level in an American exchange, the FTX US, it is highly regulated. It didn't have these kind of leveraging issues. It didn't have, I don't think it had the crossover to Alameda. And I mean, that was in the spotlight here for Gensler a year ago. He goes on to say, the American public is buying, selling, and lending crypto on these trading, lending, and DeFi platforms, and there are significant gaps in investor, investor protection. I mean, that's what this whole debacle uh, demonstrates, but SBF goes through what the problem was, like what his actual problem was. He says... I was failing to pay nearly enough attention to positions and positional risk on the exchange. Uh, I made a mistake I'm embarrassed about. I underestimated the scale of a market crash and its speed. 
and how correlated it would be. He said, goes on to say, I was not nearly cautious enough from a downside perspective, from the extreme downside perspective. I mean, that's the kind of thing that plays right into the regulator's hands. Then Gensler says, so that was from the other day's interview. This is Gensler from a year ago. We need additional congressional authority to prevent transactions, products, and platforms from falling between regulatory cracks. We need more resources to protect investors in this growing and volatile sector. He said the legislative priority should center on crypto trading, lending, and DeFi, and the regulators would benefit from additional plenary authority to write rules for and attach guardrails to crypto trading and lending. He says uh, large parts of the field of crypto are sitting astride of regulatory frameworks, not within them. And he said it's important to national security that we rein them in because standing astride isn't sustainable. For those who want to encourage innovation in crypto, remember financial innovations throughout history don't thrive outside of public policy frameworks. At the heart of finance is trust, he says. And at the heart of trust in markets is investor protection. If this field is going to continue or reach any of its potential to be a catalyst for change, we better bring it into the public policy frameworks. I agree with that. I don't think you better do it. I don't have an opinion on that, really. I'm generally not for regulation. But I know that if they didn't regulate it, buyer beware would be the rule of the day. But they are going to neutralize that instinct in us for learning from our mistakes. They're they're dumbing us down. They're nanny-stating it. They're protecting it and promoting it, and they're saying that that's what they're doing. Oh, by the way, another thing in this New York Times interview, it says, check this out. The interviewer says, uh, you had a meeting with SEC Chief Gary Gensler and with people at the CFTC. Do you think you bought your way into those meetings? (laughs) Really? No mention that Caroline Ellison's dad was Gary Gensler's boss for a while in a relevant capacity? SBS says, I mean, I don't think I needed to buy my way into them. I do think it was harder than I would have thought it would be to get to the point of even being able to have a meeting with some regulators. And I mean, I spent hundreds of hours, maybe thousands in D.C. trying to get to the point where I could even have meetings, you know, with some of the regulators. But it wasn't a money thing. I mean, there's no donation to Gary Gensler. He doesn't have a campaign to donate to in the first place. Uh, It was just elbow grease. I mean, it was just asking again and again and again to have meetings, you know, and submitting hundreds and thousands of pages of documents. So he's saying that, you know, he is like he was had to go through channels and kiss butt. And I don't think so. But he also points out, oh, Gary Gensler cannot be bought. He cannot be bought. And there's another place where this guy gives SBF an opportunity to exonerate these people these more respectable people in their orbit, he asks them about his parents, the interviewer does. And SBF says, I mean, like, I screwed up. The guy even asks SBF about his own parents. So it's very clever because the interviewer is giving SBF an opportunity to clear these really respectable people of any wrongdoing or implication, and even to the point where he says, like, Gary Gensler cannot be bought. There is no even way to buy him. And the guy even asks SBF about his parents. How did you tell your parents? They must have been so upset. They're law professors. 
And he said, yeah, I don't even remember. It was such a weird week and I, I don't even know, but so many people are suffering just because they know me, just because they're in my world. And I take full responsibility. This was all me. And at the same time in this interview, he's acting like, uh, you know, an aw shucks, you know, kind of thing. He's doing like a Morty act and you, he just comes off like an idiot, but he's not an idiot. He was a gifted kid. He went to math camp, <laughs> Mount Holyoke. I mean, the stuff that you find out about these people when you dig in. I guess a lot of these people met at math camp and also at the effective altruism thing, which I'm about to get to. But yeah, basically these guys come off as, and I think the guy, the interviewer might even have said it at one point, like, it's like you're a bunch of kids hopped up on Adderall trying to have a sleepover, something like that. And they did supposedly all live in the same house and all that kind of stuff. But in that interview, he also delivers on the issue, on the regulatory issue. And what they always gloss over in this kind of thing is that, and Gensler does say it in some of the stuff that I've read, is that to the extent the crypto stuff is a security is treated like a security and they do treat it like a security. They don't have the tools that they want to tailor to crypto, but it's not unregulated. It, they do regulate it, which is why he wasn't getting away with any of this stuff in the US. So the regulations that are bringing down wouldn't actually impact this international stuff that they were doing. I don't think. I mean, that's certainly not the stuff that I've been reading and the stuff that people are talking about and the things that will impact like you and me. But he does talk about what, what are the gaps in the system. And it looks like risk management failures is where he's focused. And I assume that will be a focus of the regulators. He says, I think a lot of what we ended up doing was focusing on a distraction uh, to some extent. And he's talking about with all the regulatory rigmarole that he was going through at FTX, he said they he completely failed on the risk side of it because he was so distracted by the regulatory side. He said risk management, and it's all full of you knows. That was, you know, customer position risk and, you know, frankly, conflict of interest risk. And, you know, there was no person who was chiefly in charge of positional risk of customers on FTX, and I should have made that happen. So, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of you knows in there to make him look like he's a, a bumbling fool, but he is pointing out that risk management failure was an issue because he had his eye off the ball, that he should have had somebody dedicated to that inside at Alameda. So maybe they'll make this a required position. Maybe it's an outsider. We'll have to be inside in all of these firms. Um, the regulatory barriers to entry will be enormous so that little guys will be wiped out. That could be why DeFi folks hated that he was in favor of this big regulatory thing. But I also see always this underlying thing where they take the chick and they, they know, and I think it's true, that it's more plausible that she dropped the ball that she just wasn't competent, that people overestimated her abilities. And he's saying that he overestimated the abilities of Alameda, and she was the CEO, not for long. There was a guy in there before. There was a grown-up. But in any case, when the fall came, it looks like this chick was the one who dropped the ball. And I think that that happens more often than that I'd like to, you know, than anybody ever talks about. Where are they talking? Maybe they'll say that. Maybe they'll say, well, they're just, why are they coming down on her? Because I think the hammer will fall on her next. 
But another thing, the interviewer talks about Larry Fink was very disappointed in this. And, you know, he, I don't know if he said he feels cheated or what. And this is just something that is another really implausible thing here. There were institutional investors, Sequoia, BlackRock, stuff like that. And you're telling me that they didn't do their due diligence. They didn't get in there and look at the books. And Freed, Bankman Freed is saying, you know, I didn't really want to get in there and look at the books because I thought there was a conflict of interest. And the way I was floating FTX money over to Alameda kind of obscured the true status of the finances. No way is BlackRock. I mean, this is not a public company. It does not have public disclosure. They do due diligence. You are not giving, if they could have invested in any alternative that could stand up to scrutiny, they would have. I mean, I guess the Theranos thing is kind of a, you know, a, a, an object lesson in this, but people did do due diligence. It was just a question of how, I believe, maybe they didn't. And there, and that had some similarities in that there were a lot of high-profile names attached, which might have given confidence to lower-level investors that it was okay. But in this case, BlackRock and Sequoia are not lower-level investors. They are not, they are not taking this on a handshake. I just don't believe that. Uh, and then he says something very specific, which is also what the CZ guy said. If I were a customer, I would look for things that I wish FTX had been able to supply, things like proof of reserves. Look for that stuff as rigorously as you can. Look for regulatory reporting. Look at what FTX had in place in Japan. Look at what FTX U.S. derivatives had with frequent reporting to regulators of exactly what customer assets, balances, liabilities, and distributions are. So he's saying that those are the regulatory regimes that are working. So it seems like uh, it's all in place and that what will come down will hit the little guy more. And there was a, I didn't go down this rabbit hole, but I don't know how deep all this, this stuff goes, how bad it is, but I got a couple of people told me about Nikolai Mashugian, Mashugian, who was a crypto you know, billionaire or something, who actually texted or tweeted that the CIA was trying to kill him, and then he was found dead in the water in Puerto Rico, fully clothed, which, with his wallet in his pocket, which means that he didn't mean to go for a swim and doesn't seem like it was a robbery. You know, that that's just an aside, just a little note I had. I really don't know what to make of that. Okay, so let's get back to... I want to get to the the other weird thing, this effective altruism thing. So Bankman Free, this is from the... Palo Alto Daily Post. SBF was born at Stanford and raised on campus by his parents as utilitarians. It says utilitarianism is a philosophy that says that morally right action is the action that produces the most good, though different utilitarians have different takes on it. The philosophy has been criticized for not emphasizing justice. As utilitarians wait the benefit of the majority over individual rights. So there's a chance that in this kind of off-center morality, they think that, you know, to the extent that the parents saw this happening, turned a blind eye or even participated to some extent because they did, you know, they weren't completely outside the, the realm here. They had a real estate holding. The dad had some, I think, tangential advisory role at some point. I don't know specifically, 
So if they really believe this, they might allow innocent people to suffer for the greater good, kind of the way when when people say like this was this is a war for freedom and then allow a draft. You know, they're drafting people to fight for your freedom. The people aren't doing it voluntarily. I mean, that is a morality that a lot of people subscribe to. So it's possible that that's how they thought of it. It's also possible because the more I look at this, the more I think, I, I'm sure innocent people got hurt. I'm sure they did. I mean, there's, it's unlikely they didn't, but I'm not convinced at the magnitude of it. And if it shakes out, like the, all this talk of tens of billions of dollars, and I mean, I don't know if there's any proof of that. And when you look at, he's saying that he thinks the American investors will get their money back, and they might. He's saying it's highly regulated, so it may be true, and the regulators have control of it. If it's the people in the international one who were using fake addresses, VPNs and stuff, then these are not the type of people I think who would have a lot of sympathy for that. And as far as like the real money that went out, like there were tens of millions of dollars in donations to Democrats and to pandemic preparedness. I'll tell you about that in a second. That to the extent real money went out, they did naming rights in Miami, but that, you know, not all of that gets paid up front, I don't think, because they resell the naming rights. They took it down or they canceled that. So some of that money goes back. There was a Super Bowl ad. There was real estate bought. Um, the value will go down. But if you look at like the tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundred or two million, two hundred million dollars that that maybe were actually accounted for, I don't think it's more than the big money guys put in. So I'm not sure how many. You know, if the thirty billion dollars of little guy money just disappeared into thin air, like I don't. I don't know if that's true. So I don't know how their moral calculus might work out, but this weird effective altruism thing feels like cult-like to me. And that is where SBF took this utilitarianism philosophy. And it happened to start, his association with them started one year in 2017, one year after an essential figure, a central figure in the effective altruism, Tara McCauley, was in San Francisco doing an effective altruism seminar, something like that. So I couldn't find an actual direct link between her and like the family, the Bankman-Fried family, until the next year where she's setting Bankman-Fried up in Hong Kong for something really crazy. I'll tell you about that in a second. So also to the extent that money got funneled into other causes, they were good causes in the minds of these people. But let me tell you what the causes were. So the brother, Samuel, Sam Bankman-Fried's brother, Gabe, he has a nonprofit called Guarding Against Pandemics. And I believe they did a big thing that discredited ivermectin. Like this is not, this is not, this isn't the kind of <laughs> preventing pandemics that anybody listening to me right now would probably be in favor of. Uh, they have like four central goals. One is effective therapeutics and vaccines for every known pathogen, better masks, safer buildings, and pandemic proofing in all public spaces, and faster and better testing. And I'm sure I would disagree with every one of those if you dug in, because whatever. But the mother, Barbara Freed's sister, Linda Freed, so the aunt of Bankman Freed, 
is the dean of Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and has been since 2008. She's also the co-chair of the Global Future Council on the Future of Human Enhancement at the World Economic Forum. So I don't know what kind of morality these guys have. I think they have morality. I think they have a coherent moral system in their heads. It is probably the opposite from mine. And I know Barbara Freed wrote stuff discrediting libertarians, I think because she said people aren't really as responsible for their actions as libertarians want to make them out to be, I think. <laughs> That's just from memory. But yeah, so I was, I've never been a fan of her philosophy, which is probably true for all the Stanford law professors. No criticism on their integrity, but I would definitely not agree with their ideologies. And But what Barbara did was she started a Mind, mind the Gap, which I, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they gave 20 million to that, if SBF gave 20 million, I'm not sure, but they, their goal is to do like stealth political action where like their, their funding of a candidate would be an October surprise shot in there before a Republican opponent would even know that there was new money coming in, would, would not see it coming. Um, and another weird thing about the family, I did not even know this, that the dad was born in El Salvador. I can't find any connection. I can't find any details on that. I can't find any Bankmans in El Salvador. But I did happen to notice that El Salvador was the first country who used crypto, recognized it as a currency, like that was the first experiment. I don't know, kind of weird. So I guess the the proof in the pudding would be if he actually goes to jail. (laughs) I don't think he's going to. And I think that he may have not actually done anything technically illegal. And I think that they might spin it as, you see, this just demonstrates how risky the system is. This is a flaw in the system. I should have been stopped. They may even say that they're glad that it happened because it will have done more good in the end than harm. I wouldn't be surprised if that stuff comes out. And another funny little legal happy coincidence, I think, for Larry David was in the Super Bowl ad, which he did, the ad was him running around saying how bad good things were. How bad is the wheel? How bad is the uh, electricity? How bad is the indoor toilet? And then someone says to him, how about FTX? And he's like, nah, not buying it. So funnily enough, Larry David did not promote it. (laughs) He denounced it technically, right? I mean, if I were a judge, I would say I know sarcasm when I see it. But I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, I'm going to read a a quote from SBF from that interview. FTX US, to my knowledge, totally solvent. FTX US derivatives, totally solvent. And in fact, I believe FTX US derivatives, Ledger X, which I know is highly regulated or was when they acquired it, may even be up and running right now. I'm confused why FTX US is not processing customer withdrawals right now. I would think it should be because I believe, to my knowledge, that it could be and could make all Americans 100% whole from this. So, and FTX US derivatives, as I said there, doesn't even allow leverage of any sort. It was, you know, close to a spot trading platform. And so, yeah, to my knowledge, all American customers and all American regulated businesses and exchanges here are, I think, at least in terms of client assets, are okay. So I think there is something to that. All right. 
So let me talk about this effective altruism philosophy, which I do at this point think is a bit of a cult. They talk about long-termism. They don't like short-term, high-profile, no rubber hits the road, um, fundraisers, celebrity stuff. They don't like it. They don't like rich people. Or I should say, they may have changed their tune, but the founder of this philosophy, William McCaskill, who's a Scottish born um, philosophy teacher at Oxford. I don't think he's a full professor there, but he's at Oxford. And he did, in his youth, live quite austerely to make the point that you could get super, super rich, people should get super rich, but live hand to mouth, give everything away, yada, yada. So that's a fine, if you actually do that, okay. But a lot of people don't, and it ends up being the reason that people who are really wealthy who have got ill-gotten gains or who use political influence to beat competitors out of fair competition, they will say, I've done such good with this money. Or they'll promote regulation and say, oh, other people can't handle the responsibility and I can. And then they end up going belly up or doing something you know, unscrupulous, like in this case. And this also reminds me of Soros, who said that under Karl Popper, who was his professor, I think, at LSE, the London School of Economics, he decided to get rich so that he could promote this guy's anti-tribalism philosophy in the world with his money. And Soros got rich front-running the pound, and maybe that was a legit thing. Maybe you could do that by insider tips. And that's what I think is weird about this Terry Tara, Tara McCauley, who is essential figure in effect of altruism. She was the one who was in San Francisco in 2016. And in 2017, she helped SBF, who must have been like 25 at the time, go to Hong Kong, get connected with a Japanese banking account or something so that he could exploit a Bitcoin arbitrage opportunity because the price of Bitcoin was trading differently in, I guess, Japan or South Korea, or both. It's called like the kimchi something or other. I can't remember what it was called. But uh, it was an, and for me, arbitrage opportunities are extremely rare. And when they happen, they close up immediately. So you could say arbitrage opportunities happen every five, every microsecond and get gobbled up. Either now that it's like electronic trading, I don't think you could even, really points to an arbitrage opportunity, but there used to be where you could buy something on one exchange and sell it on another with a guaranteed profit because they were not selling it, trading at the same prices. That's classic arbitrage. For this to be a real arbitrage opportunity that could be exploited over time is very hard to believe. And by the, by him or, and her, very hard to believe. I know people I would believe it about. <laughs> Nothing about these guys convinces me. But that's how he got his start. That was Alameda Research. And, you know, when you get that kind of outside funding from somebody with this agenda, you know, it, it indicates to me some vision, some foresight. And these, like all the guys at the top here, SBF, Ellison, and others at the top are these effective altruism people. And McCaskill actually addressed it recently in a series of tweets, I think, but I read it in an article for him saying, like, if he really did this, he totally missed the point of effective altruism. And um, if he did, I will apologize if he did. So I just don't know how it's going to shake out. 
But it it really it feels like it was a setup from the beginning. And the fact that they they put so much into the PR of it, they hyped it up so people would know about it. They had uh, a Super Bowl ad. You know, they had naming rights at a big arena. They were getting a deal with Mercedes. I mean, this is big. And then the downfall came from leaked documents, which is always suspicious, but from a Twitter feud. I mean, that's just not how to handle this. And it's hard for me to believe that this Binance guy, who seems to be on his feet still, would do something that unnecessarily public and stupid. I just I just don't get it. And then another thing that really gave this a lot of, you know, rather than seeing the numbers, really understanding it, we're just being told. And here was something I also thought was weird. John Jay, who handled Enron's restructuring, is now the acting CEO of FTX. And he says that this is the worst thing he's ever seen. He says this is the worst thing he ever seen next to Enron. And that's because we're being told about these huge numbers. But when you're when you're mar- putting things on the margin a hundred times, it's going to distort the numbers. You know what I mean? You're going to have some double counting. You know, you can have things disappear that isn't real money. So I, I just don't. I just don't. I just don't buy this story. But I, what I do, I'm pretty sure, is that regulations will be coming. Uh, just a couple of things I pulled, but there's just nothing. I'm sure. I probably won't even know what they look like when they come because they'll be in the form of like regulatory agencies and the Congress will just empower regulatory agencies to do it. But Senator John Boozman committed to move forward uh, on this bill that I think SBF had been promoting. He says, in light of these developments, we are taking a top-down look to ensure the bill establishes the necessary safeguards the digital commodities market desperately needs. Uh, we remain committed to advancing a final version of the DCCPA that creates a regulatory framework that allows for international cooperation and gives consumers greater confidence that their investments are safe. Okay, so it anticipates this international element, but it is cooperation and not authority. However, that is true. That is That would address this. That would explain why they're emphasizing so much that difference. And he urged regulators to use already existing powers to prosecute misconduct in the digital asset industry. Well, I don't think they have the power to prosecute this guy if he didn't break any laws. Uh, Maxine Waters, that um, intellectual giant, is... (laughs) I'm sorry, but she's drafting legislation to regulate stablecoin. And like she just makes silly gaffes that makes me think that she's really just not capable of drafting regulation. (laughs) For stablecoin, but this wasn't a stablecoin. Stablecoin is actually tied to a real thing. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, but they'll just throw everything in at the same time. I'm absolutely sure. So, in the end, my takeaway is that crypto will be saved by regulation. I really think so. Uh, this and so much else are warning signs that the buyers should beware, yet they will come in and say, don't worry, we got your back. And then people, you know, they'll make it easier to do. 
And yeah, I mean, they probably will keep something like this from happening. I don't think, I think they could have kept this from happening already. I think that the way this turned out, that none of this would have happened. I think those big time investors would have, should have, and did know what was going on in there. They could have, all you'd have to do, at one point, SBF says, all you had, to, all they would have had to do, they don't need to regulate me. They just need to ask me to do things the way they want me to do them, and I will. And then that would have worked. Bad PR. He actually, at another point, said, this thing was brought down by a by a PR attack. So if anybody had spoken up about anything or done normal due diligence, it would have been out in the open. So anyway, I did want to tell people that I have a True Hemp Science promo code called Deep Dive, one word, capital D Deep, capital D Dive, but it's one word. You can get a $25 bottle of oil for every $100 purchase, which I think is awesome. And then if you get even more than that, I think you get free shipping. Uh, it's super great. The, the True Hemp Science CBD products are amazing. Like uh, There is no doubt in my mind uh, they have the highest quality CBD products. And this is what I say. <laughs> I said this to somebody recently about my show. It's like, if you don't follow the news, don't listen to my show you're better off, like, you know, picking wildflowers on the side of the road, you know. But if you are interested in what's going on in the world and you do want to know the story behind the story, then you should listen to my show. And I say the same thing about True Hemp Science. If you, if you don't ever have anxiety or problems sleeping, or if you're not trying to cut down on the calories of your, you know, evening wine, if you've got all that under control then and you don't use CBD, good for you. But if you do use CBD, True Hemp Science, or if you have problems like that you want to try CBD for, uh, True Hemp Science is actually such high-quality stuff that I highly recommend that you uh, go to their website, truehempscience.com, find goodies that you think will help you. I love, I just like the gummies. That's all. It's as simple as that. They have a lot of products, but I like the gummies. Anyway, um, yes, the promo code is Deep Dive, capital D, capital D. One word for a $25 bottle of oil for every $100 purchase. All right. Well, I have been off for a long time. So forgive me if I was a little tongue-tied here and there. It happens. I'm still a little jet-lagged, as a matter of fact. I did just put out a newsletter with all of my shows. I've got the Fat Mitch thing is on there. I've got a Christmas cocktail, a great koodle, a couple of great koodles for Christmas, and a really fantastic book recommendation. So you can check that out at monicasdeepdives.com. And if you enjoyed this show, if you found it interesting, you know anybody who's interested in the FTX scandal or crypto in general, please share this show with them or on social media. And if you want to talk about it or you have any corrections or insights or anything you want to add, please do so at, uh, on Twitter at Monica Perez show so that, and I try to answer everything every night. Okay. All righty. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again soon.